This woman, excellent example of her faith, as well as Elisha, particularly as they both prayed for this child to be brought back to life again. And some of you may have noticed, uh, maybe this is a a spelling test here. Uh, Do you see an error on that list that I didn't notice until I'd already made made all the copies? (laughs) What's that? Yes. And here's where logic can get you in trouble. The, The city is Shunem with an E. So I just said, okay, Shunemite also spelled with an E. But no, (laughs) the biblical word, and it is in Scripture several times concerning this incident, is when it's spelled Shunemite, it's with an A. So I probably shouldn't be too concerned about that, but those little things. Oh, yeah, I forgot to do that. Yeah, actually, tilt down. And then we looked at these other two miracles concerning the pottage that was poisoned with the wild gourd, and and I was remiss. I and fully intended. I listened very well, Brother Bob Conrad, to your remarks yesterday, yesterday morning, and I, I I meant to uh, tie in his his exhortation concerning the true vine. You know, when this uh, son of the prophet went out and and picked the wild goat gourds from from the vine, you know, and we talked about the poisonous nature of those wild gourds that poisoned the pottage and made the analogy to uh, false doctrines and how that can be toxic to our faith and and to our salvation, as well as the poisons out there in the world. And and then we got into the the bread that multiplied and fed the hundred men, and we talked about the true, true bread, but I failed to mention the, uh, the true vine in connection with Brother Bob's talk yesterday morning. So that brings us to miracle number 10. Naaman the leper. And that's found in the fifth chapter of Second Kings. It's beginning by reading verse 1. Second Kings chapter 5. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance into Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. So our attention now turns to a Gentile in a Gentile land. We are all very familiar, and perhaps most familiar of all of Elisha's miracles with this one, concerning Naaman, who was captain of the king's army in Syria. And this, our, our, I know our children are also familiar with this because it's always been a, one of the favorite Sunday school stories that are ch- all children, I think, are become very familiar with this because it's a very interesting story and certainly has much meaning. So we find in this first verse a testimonial to this man that he was a great man and he was honorable 
We're also told that Yahweh had favored this man with victories. So there was something very special about this man, a Gentile in a Gentile nation far away from Israel. But for all his accomplishments and his personal qualities, Naaman had one serious problem, a physical one, and that was leprosy. We all know how terrible this disease is. In fact, it's incurable. And we know that it's a symbol in Scripture of sin and corruption of the flesh. It has always been referred to as walking death. And that tells you a lot about how, how, just how terrible this disease is. For its pain, the pain of its affliction, and the physical disfigurement as it continues to progress in severity. Now under the law, we know if Naaman was a Jew living in Israel, he would have been living outside the camp or outside the city in exclusion from the rest, living with the other lepers. But this apparently was not the case in Syria. Of course, Naaman was not under the law. In verse 2, reading on, Chapter 5. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. So we're introduced to this young maiden who's a very important character in this incident and in this miracle. We must believe it was providential that this young girl was here in Syria and this, at this particular time waiting on the wife of Naaman. Nothing is said about her background, about how she was abducted, except that it was when the Syrians went to raid Israel. Nothing is said about how she was separated from her family, the grief that surely the parents were feeling, but we can imagine her situation, and her families. And we're reminded perhaps of Joseph as he had been sent by God into Egypt through similar adversity. So here we find this Israelite girl sent, as it were, into captivity to save this Gentile. Now if we were being held against our will as a prisoner in a foreign land, as a young child, what would be our attitude? But what seems to be the attitude as we read on concerning this maiden in Syria? There's not a hint of bitterness or resentment on her behalf for being taken from far from her home and made a slave. What we observe instead is what I would say is the same faith that Joseph had when he was in Egypt. She found her servitude an opportunity to minister unto her God, the God of Israel. And the opportunity came with the illness of her mistress's husband. And her chance to speak a word in season came as we read in verse 3. 
And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy, and we know of whom she's speaking. And so she sees the opportunity in an amazing display of faith. Amazing from the standpoint that she would speak up at all as a young maiden in such circumstances. Concerning, now concerning a prophet from Syria's, the enemy of Syria, from, from Israel. It was also amazing from the standpoint that as far as we know, no one had ever been healed of leprosy to this point. So what was she basing her certainty on? We know it was a conviction of faith. That nothing was impossible for Yahweh of Israel and his prophet. And so she was a courageous advocate, we might say, of the one true God. And so the first lesson, certainly for us, when we think about the faith of this girl, is our faith just as strong? Would we have reacted the same way in such a situation? What an example we have then of this advocate, this witness in a foreign land, as she pointed the way to salvation, the way to help for Naaman. And so the king of Syria is informed, as we read on, and writes a letter to the king of Israel, beginning in verse 5. And the king of Syria said, Go. Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman, my servant, to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. So this procession of Naaman and certainly many others came to the king with this letter, the king of Israel, that is, with a letter from the king of Syria. The letter made it clear that the Syrian king expected the king of Israel to effect a cure for Naaman's leprosy. And, of course, he was unable to do that. How, how Elisha came to hear of the king's distress... We're not told as we read on. It was not too long before the procession was directed into, from the king's palace to the, to the home of prophet Elisha. As we read on in verse 8. And so it was when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot 
and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. Now we find in verse 10 that Elisha did not come out himself, but sent a message with the instructions, the very simple instructions of how Naaman could heal, be healed or cured of his leprosy. As we read on in verse 11, we find that Naaman was outraged at the presumed, what he considered an insult. Let's read verses 10 and 11. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth, and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me. And stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. And strike his hand over the place. And recover the leper. So here we find Naaman saying, who is this prophet? Who does he think he is? Sending a messenger out to me, captain of the Syrian army. And telling me to wash in this river Jordan. That's far from the much nicer rivers in Syria. Well, this was clearly a test of faith, was it not? A test of faith and obedience for Naaman. And in this test, there was no room for human pride, which is, we believe, Naaman's initial reaction. He expected, as we said, Elisha to run out and effect the cure in some very dramatic way. What would our, our reaction have been? What would, have, would our pride have gotten in the way in this case? If we put our, try to put ourselves in the shoes of Naaman. Now we are, as we read on, we were given reason to believe that Naaman was in fact a kind man. He was on good terms with the servants or soldiers that were with him. So now despite his hurt pride, he's willing to listen to their reasoning, to his servants' reasoning, and manifest the necessary humility. As we read on in verses 13 and 14. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean. Then he went down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So the wisdom of Naaman's servants prevailed with a very joyful result that's described here in verse 14. And we wonder what thoughts went through his mind as he made the journey through the countryside to the river and followed exactly now the instructions of Elisha. What joy he must have had as he came out of the waters and was washed and healed. Surely he was very gratified, particularly to, to Elisha, but perhaps he was thinking about the others and had gratitude and thankfulness towards them. We think about the little maid that suggested that he find the prophet of Yahweh in Samaria. And the king of Israel, who wrote the letter and sent him on his way with the very 
uh, elaborate gifts. The king of Israel who allowed him to go on to Elisha after Elisha requested that. And finally, his servants for prevailing on him to do what he was told to do by Elisha. A changed man. Picking up in verse 15. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him, that is Elisha. And he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. This declaration we just read in verse 15 demonstrates to us, does it not, a tremendous change in this man, in his heart, as well as his body. His earlier anger and frustration has gone and he's now been replaced with faith in the one God of Israel as he stands before Elisha. Elisha proceeds to or excuse me, Naaman, as we just read, proceeds to ask Elisha to accept the gifts that he had been brought from that had been brought from Syria. Yet despite his urging, and surely the need of Elisha, we can imagine Elisha's position in terms of his own possessions. He could have very well used these gifts, but he refused the offer. So we read in verse 16. But he said, as the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. It seems that the healing, or Elisha was looking at this as he should have, that the healing was a gift from God. And Elisha expected nothing in return. What was given to Naaman by the power of Yahweh was worth more, actually, than all the valuables that he had brought from Syria. And so they should be taken back to Damascus, unnecessary and unused. In verse 17, we find the first of two what seemed to be, at least at first first reading, strange request of Naaman. Picking up in verse 17. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules, burden of earth. For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. Going on in verse 18, In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord Yahweh, pardon thy servant in this thing. So what is he asking here of Elisha? Again, it's a very clear demonstration of the change in this man's heart and whom in whom he has faith. He wanted to take two loads of soil from Israel back to Syria. And what was he going to do with this dirt from Israel? He wanted to use it to build an altar, as he said, for burnt offerings and sacrifices to the God of Israel. And 
Clearly not to the God of Syria, Rimmon. We notice as well that Naaman now offers to himself as Elisha's servant another indication of, his, of the change of his attitude and devotion. He's not concerned at all when he goes back what others will think of his newfound faith. He will not be embarrassed at all to offer sacrifices to the God of Israel or the possible loss of his position as captain of Syria's army. He's not concerned about his social status and any effect that going back with his newfound faith might have on it. And so his second request involves a possible problem he foresees if he continues in his position. For one of his responsibilities, it seems, was to occupy the king when, he went into, when the king went to worship in the house of Rimmon. The ceremony involved bowing before the idol as the king leaned on his arm to make obeisance. Now this may, the concern Naaman had was that this may look like he is still worshiping this God of Rimmon, this false God. And Naaman wanted to make it very clear that even though it may appear that way, his heart was with the God of Israel. That's where, that was his real faith at this point. And so Naaman is sent off for home with restored faith, or restored health in the first case, but a wonderful hope now in his heart. And he returns with all the treasures that he had come with, as well as this load of soil from the land of the one true God of Israel. So Elisha tells him, and surely he did, go in peace. Now we know, and, and like I said, if we studied any of the miracles of Elisha, it's this one. And I, hopefully this is just a review of the things that we've learned before concerning this parable, if we will, if you want to call it that, and I think it is, a par the parable of Naaman's cure. Some have said that the curing of Naaman's leprosy is one of the most powerful types of the gospel message in the Old Testament. And I would agree. For it describes, if we think about it, it describes the way into salvation and recognizes several very important aspects, most important and critical aspects of the way into salvation. First of all, the need for healing of our flesh. Is it not an incurable disease without this healing? Is it not ultimately a fatal disease? And that the cure can only come through the greater prophet. The one physician that has prescribed the means for each of us and of all mankind to be cured of this disease. And also, it's very clear that this Healing cannot be purchased at any price, just as Elisha refused the gifts from Naaman. And certainly there is this cleansing process, a cleansing process that must be done in the prescribed way, 
Just as Naaman had to wash seven times, and not just in any water, but the water of the, of the Jordan. Just as when we are washed in baptism, and our sins flow from the Jordan into the Dead Sea. And then there's this matter of an attitude. Remember that Elisha, his initial reaction was one of pride. He was insulted. A humble and sincere attitude is clearly a prerequisite to our cleansing. And then what comes after this cleansing? We submit that the zeal that we have after baptism must be maintained as forgiven sinners. Just as Naaman, when he returned to Syria, desired to continue to worship and witness to the one true God of Israel. When we think ahead to the time of Jesus, when he healed the ten lepers, and we won't take the time to turn there, but it's found in Luke 17. But the point we want to make is that we recall of those ten, there was only one that came back in joy to offer thanks for his healing. And he, like Naaman, recall we recall was a Gentile. So we should learn the lesson then, and this is not the only miracle where we learn this, and that is of thankfulness. In this particular case, Thankfulness for spiritual healing. Spiritual healing through the grace of God. And we should have that same, as we can imagine Naaman coming out of the waters of the Jordan with overwhelming gratitude. And hopefully we still have that feeling now of our healing. And also to be thankful, as Naaman surely was, of those who helped him to be cured. Those who led him, as it were, to the waters of baptism. Particularly that young girl back in Syria. Now it's off the subject a bit, but, and, and, but I think it, it supports some of the things we've been talking about in our class, as well as yesterday in Brother James' class. Um, there were about ten, plus or minus, young people. When I was in the lounge last night, uh, reviewing my notes for my class today, and this has happened the last three nights. You know, the young people come in, open the door. Uh, I forgot it closed, but I left it unlocked. And for the most part, they they look in and they see me. They're either kind of surprised or mostly disappointed that I'm occupying their room. Uh, none none are rude, though. I must say that. But. What struck me last night was there was young, one young person who came to the room, saw me, didn't just close the door, but said, oh, Brother Ken, I'm sorry that I disturbed you. And so this, I think, is a lesson for us. She was respectful. She was polite. Just as there was one of the ten lepers that went back to thank Jesus for healing. 
Now, what, before we leave the subject of Naaman, we want to, and I'm sure you're aware of this, that there's, there's actually only one time in the New Testament where Elisha is referred to, and that's in Luke chapter 4. So let's turn there quickly. Luke 4. And it begins in verse 24. Verse 24, Christ says, of Luke 4, And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country by his own people. And then he mentions the example, first, of Elijah. As he points out concerning Elijah, that although there were many widows in Israel, it was a Gentile widow that God sent the prophet to to provide sustenance as we recall the widow of Zarephath. Whoops. And then it's back in, in, its, in verse 27, we have reference to Elisha. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, or Elisha, the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, save, saving Naaman the Syrian, or Naaman the Gentile. We believe the message that Jesus is giving his fellow Jews at this point is the fact that, or that he was actually rebuking his people for their exclusiveness, exclusiveness from the Gentiles. The fact that Christ refers to this miracle of Elisha, as well as its obvious connection to baptism, as we just reviewed, makes this story, the story of Naaman, the best-known and most often referred to of all of Elisha's miracles. But we don't want to miss the point that Christ has just made. The point about the Gentiles. And especially as we look at ourselves and our tendency, I admit and I must say, to be perhaps too exclusive. That we should be looking to others and sharing the hope that we have. We should be rejoicing concerning the salvation that has been offered to us. Fleshly tendency that we all have to be prejudiced, that, and that one that we must surely avoid. I think we know what happens next. One has already referred to the rest of the story here. Elijah, or excuse me, Elisha had refused the generous offer of gifts from Naaman. But we know another member of his household didn't want to pass up the chance to have at least some of this wealth and the security that he thought it could buy him. Gehazi was not content to see all that gold and silver and clothing go back to Syria unclaimed. And so he conjures up a set of lies to claim part of it for himself. Picking up back in 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 21. So Gehazi followed after Naaman, and when Naaman saw him running after him, he lighted down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? 
And he said, All is well, my master. My master has sent me, saying, Behold, even now there be come to me from Mount Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Give them, I pray thee, a talent of silver and two changes of garments. Of course, this was all a made-up story. And we know who these who he really wanted these gifts for. So we're reminded here of Achan, and, and as recorded in Joshua 7, and his greed. We're reminded of Judas, as well as Ananias and Sapphira, and the punishment that each of them received in their situations. In verse 23, as we read on, we find that Naaman is more than pleased to oblige the request of Gehazi. And in fact, he offers an extra talent of silver to Naaman. When he returns, that is, Naaman returns to Elisha, we find him telling another lie in response to the question of where he had gone. In verse 25, we read, Gehazi went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said unto him, Whence comest thou, Gehazi? And he said, Thy servant went no whither. I haven't gone anywhere. And what is Elisha's reply? In verse 26 we read, Went not mine heart with thee, when the man turned again from his chariot to meet thee. Went not mine heart with thee. He knew ahead of time exactly what was going on. And he knew what Gehazi was up to and what he had done. And no doubt this knowledge was tinged with sadness as Elisha observed the defection of his servant. Gehazi did not have the loyalty and commitment when we compare the loyal and commitment that Elisha had for his master, Elijah. And we see a parallel as well, as we've already mentioned, to the life of Judas. He had the continuous opportunity to be with his master, the Lord Jesus, to witness his exemplary way of life. But he too was attracted to what money could buy, what the world had to offer. And certainly Jesus knew well in advance that Judas would betray him. From Elisha's comment in verse 26, it is clear as we... Let's read the, uh, the rest of that verse. As he says in the, in the second half of the verse, Is it a time to receive money and to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maid servants? It seemed that Gehazi had intentions to take the, this, this silver and clothing and sell it to buy all these other things with his ill-gotten wealth. He desired, he thought, a better life. He was going to buy a farm and have all these things and no longer serve the man of God. So Gehazi had fallen into the snare that so many have fallen into and certainly is there, still there for us. The desire to have mammon and not serve God. And the temptation was too much for him as he sought the earthly treasure, as was pointed out in exhortation this morning. 
What doth it profit if we gain the whole world and lose our souls? As Gehazi heard the chilling words recorded in verse 27, he left the presence of Elisha as a leper. The leprosy, therefore, of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and to thy seed forever. In review, then, certainly we have many lessons concerning Gehazi. As we already mentioned, Gehazi had had the privilege, even above the sons of the prophets, to be in the company of Elisha at all times. But despite his association with the man of God, he still succumbed to the temptation of the flesh. Are we not likewise without excuse, knowing our Lord Jesus, having the opportunity to read his words every day? Are we not also without excuse if we do like or excuse me, Gehazi did? And so Gehazi, we might say, let everything go for earthly treasures that he thought could buy him the good life. We might say he had another spirit, unfortunately, that he was driven by covetousness, greed, selfishness, and narrow-minded ambition. And he allowed these things to become stronger than his loyalty to Elisha and, more importantly, to his God. Our ability to discern good from evil is determined, we submit, by the things upon which we focus on. If we set our eyes on the world, on wealth and material things, we may have a, quote, good life. But we know it's for the moment, again, as we heard this morning. But we will depart, unfortunately, with leprosy. The leprosy of Naaman will remain with us. Lying and deception compounded the evil of of, uh, Gehazi. But Elisha, we know, was not deceived at all. He knew before the act was committed, as we said, as he said, went not mine heart with thee. Surely God is never deceived. And he knows our thoughts, he knows our sin before it is committed. Righteous judgment was then carried out as the disease that symbolizes sin clung to Gehazi. And so we pray that our cure will be permanent and we will not allow this walking death to cling to us. Going on to the next miracle in chapter 6. This is another one like uh, the the bears coming out of the woods and uh, a couple of the other shorter ones. And and perhaps this one might even be, be the strangest, quote, strangest of all. But like the others, we're not entitled to dismiss it with quick reading. Dismiss it as if it's something trivial or there's no point. We must consider why 
God chose to have this preserved for us in Scripture for our day. Let's begin by reading verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. And the sons of the prophets said unto Elisha, Behold now, the place where we dwell with thee is too straight for us. Let us go, we pray thee, into Jordan, and take thence every man a beam, and let us make us a place there where we may dwell. And he answered, Go ye. So it seems that the sons of the prophets thought that their living quarters were too small at this point. And they invited Elisha along to help them with a, and get his blessing for a more suitable place. Their new home was to be near the Jordan. And the wood for building it would come from trees around the riverbank, as well as, well as making use, it seems, of the beams that were in their existing house. And we note that it appears that they ask for Elisha's blessing, which shows something of their faith as well as their relationship with Elisha. Elisha spent a lot of time. Uh, if we haven't emphasized this too much, but he spent a lot of time, and a lot of these miracles have to do with these sons of the prophets in these different locations. And we said at the beginning of the class, we believe that they made up a, at least a portion of, of the faithful remnant in Elijah's day, Elijah's day that he referred to as the 7,000 that had not bowed the knee to Baal. So Elisha was there exhorting to them, advising them, and we think just very similar to when the Apostle Paul traveled to the Ecclesias and did the same in the first century. The sons of the prophets were like his spiritual family, and he dwelt with them when he was there in, their, in one of their cities as their teacher and their spiritual father. Their way of life, certainly, we can imagine, was very primitive. They didn't have much in the way of worldly possessions only the necessities of life. And so as we read on, we find reference to the axe that was borrowed. They didn't even have their own axe. And it seems it was a team effort. Everyone was to pitch in and help. Everyone had to take a beam or cut a new beam to build their new home near the Jordan. And during the process, as we read on, we find this matter of the axe head falling off. In verse 3, And one said, Be content, I pray thee, and go with thy servants. And he answered, I will go. That is, Elisha will go along with them. And so he went with them. And when they came to Jordan, they cut down wood. But as one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water. And he cried and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So we know quite well what happened here. The axe, as he was swinging the axe, the head came off, fell into the water, into the river. You can imagine this heavy axe head sinking quickly into the mud at the bottom. And the person, this, this particular son of the prophet then, was concerned. He says, Alas, Master, the his concern was twofold. One was the fact that he couldn't work any longer because he didn't have an axe, axe head on his, on his axe. And also, his bigger concern, it seemed, that 
He had borrowed this axe. He didn't even own it. But help was at hand. And so Elisha asked where it fell and proceeded to cut down a stick, as we read on in verses 6 and 7. And after throwing the stick in the water, the axe head floats to the surface, where the son of the prophet could then retrieve it. What can we learn from this? Another short, and you might say, fairly strange or peculiar miracle. The sons of the prophets were building a larger home to live in. But we can be assured that this desire to move was in no way driven by greed or a desire just to have a bigger place to live in for the sake of having a larger home. We can be more assured that it was simply a matter of necessity, that their numbers had grown and their existing structure was too small. Who are we, certainly, to criticize? Who are we to criticize? We must examine our wants versus our needs. In this situation, and as well as many, what's another lesson? We are accustomed to thinking and rightly so, that there is no problem too large for the God of Israel, Yahweh Almighty. But here we have a wonderful example and an exhortation from something at first glance, as we said, perhaps isn't even worthy of recording, something very trivial, perhaps pointless. But I would submit is a powerful lesson of the loving concern of our Father in Heaven. And so when we are tempted to think that our little worries and difficulties are much too insignificant to be of concern and interest to our Father, let us call to mind the response of Elisha to the cry of the young man. Let's, Let's read the last two verses of this miracle, verses 6 and 7. And the man of God said, Where fell it? And he showed him in the place, and he cut down a stick and cast it in thither, and iron did swim. Therefore, said he, take it up to thee. And he put out his hand and took it. In Brother David Wood's book, he records a verse from a Sunday school hymn that's not familiar to me, but perhaps you have, you have seen it. In one particular verse... It refers to this. He says, Not one concern of ours is too small if we belong to him. To teach us this, the Lord of all once made the iron to swim. And that seems to be perhaps the most important lesson. There is nothing too small for Yahweh. Yahweh may not restore what has been lost, but he understands and can comfort us in our distress. It's essential to know that he does care and he has a loving concern for all of us as our master in heaven. And what does the borrowed axe teach us? 
Does it not teach us, again, as we were reminded in exhortation this morning, that we don't own anything in this world? Everything is borrowed. Everything is a gift. God has entrusted us, we might say, just like with the axe, with many tools. Entrusted us with many talents, referring to Christ's parable. And soon he will come and ask us to give account of how we have used these borrowed tools. <coughs> Elisha asked, where fell it? His first reaction was, how can I help? His first reaction was, how can I help? He didn't scold this man for losing the axe head or reprimand him for being overzealous in his swinging or the fact that he had not tightened the axe head perhaps well enough on the axe before using it. Instead, he showed sympathy and compassion. We ask ourselves, is this our first reaction when something goes wrong for someone else? And we think about even with our children. And perhaps it's not always appropriate this, that this be our first reaction, but we must think about these things. And also this miracle is the over, shows us the overcoming of the natural law, in this case, of gravity. We know that Yahweh certainly has the power over the laws of nature. And this one, like some of the miracles of Christ, show us that, in fact, he has this power and can even reverse them at his will. In the last verse of this miracle, we are shown that the son of the prophet, as it has with some of the other miracles, had to make an effort himself. For Elisha caused the axe head to come to the surface. But the son of the prophet still had to reach out and take it. And so God will help us. But again, we have to make an effort ourselves. I intended to get to Miracle 13 today, but hopefully, Lord willing, we'll have a chance to review this one and the remaining miracles of Elisha. But we find Elisha now going to this town of Dothan, which is about 10 miles north of Samaria. And this great host that surrounds the city where they are intent on capturing Elisha. So perhaps you would like to, and I would encourage you to read ahead here in 2 Kings chapter 6, and then we'll go from there. After chapter 6, we find it's interesting, and we'll review it very briefly tomorrow, but there's a, a large gap where Elisha is only mentioned a couple of times, very briefly in chapters 8 and 9, and then we don't pick up again and find where we find Elisha at the end of his life, and we'll Review the incidents around that, Lord willing, tomorrow.